Hello. It's like a, a fox snatching a rabbit all over in a matter of seconds. The man in the car would have passed the two girls and then should have passed in that day. I drove all over the place looking for I'm not exactly proud of the way I feel towards young girls, but this other part that says, you like it, go on. There's a part of me that knows I'm wrong, that knows it, it's wrong, that uh, I shouldn't be doing things like that, I shouldn't even be thinking things like that. But there's other part that says, you like it, go on. In this podcast, I want to discuss how the investigation developed over the weeks, months and years after Jeanette disappeared. It's a lot of years to cover in one episode, so we'll move on from the initial investigation shortly. But before we do, I want to touch upon a curious aspect of the case. Ever since Jeanette went missing, alternative, fantastical explanations about what had happened to her were put forward. Almost from the outset, Jeanette's disappearance attracted a host of people with no credible scientific background but with lots of ideas about where she was. I'm reluctant to give spiritualists, mediums and so-called psychics any time in the podcast at all, but I have to admit that they undoubtedly form a part of the story. What surprises me is that police, to an extent, appear to have taken them seriously. Maybe it was something to do with the times, In the mid-70s, people like Yuri Geller had achieved international celebrity and riches on the back of claims about psychokinetics, telepathy and bending spoons. We have heard previously how hypnotists were brought in by police to try and jog the memory of witnesses and the Tate family themselves. Because detectives had failed to find any trace of Jeanette in the real world, They were willing to listen to explanations from another dimension altogether. Gerard Croiset, or Croiset, was a self-styled parapsychologist or psychic from Utrecht who made a name for himself in the 60s and 70s assisting police in missing person cases. His self-proclaimed skills took him all over the world and his reputation was as high as anybody in the field. By November 1978, he was helping in the search for Jeanette at the request of the police and the expense of the Daily Express. Here's Mike Charleston to explain. The Express were only too happy and we flew him over and I took him under my wing and took him to the cop shop. He'd been trying with the aid of maps previously. He came up with two different descriptions of places quite close to Aylesborough on farmland where he believed that the body might be and uh, that was searched and searched and searched and there was nothing to it. And then he said, well, he was finding it difficult actually not being at the scene. And that was what prompted the police who, who I mean, Proven Sharp put it on the basis that, look, I, I can't possibly get the police to pay for this, he said, but I, I'm sure the Express might. And I said, yeah, I bet you. 
and uh, that was that was how you arrived. Crossett was not the only psychic to offer his services. In fact, Jeanette's case attracted dozens of clairvoyants and so-called paranormal experts who offered incredible and incredibly vague explanations for Jeanette's disappearance. They really came into their own in the weeks after police vacated the village hall in Aylesbury and moved their centre of operations back to Exeter. A big national story like this one was at that time. I think you get all sorts of queer folk who are quite genuinely trying to help. It's difficult to tell where all this started. Maybe it was just something to do with the era itself. The newspaper Jeanette was delivering at the time she went missing carried a story on its front page about a possible UFO sighting over Exeter. It was based on no more than a poorly developed image of a light in the sky. In such a climate, it is just about possible to see why people were prepared to believe almost anything. But anyway, they've, they've never got anything out of these 300 readers. They've carefully investigated every one of them uh, just to see if there was something that might be useful. Do you think the police may have missed a, a crucial well, piece of evidence along the way because they were concentrating or, or taking seriously some of the claims by spiritualists or, or mediums? Or no, whatever. I don't think they were taking them seriously. It was a shot in the dark, really, I think. Mm. Certainly the Crossay thing was. Uh, Proven Sharp never had any great faith that it would produce results, but desperate mm. that they, they wanted to try anything. One group of psychic detectives even took over the village hall as their base, installing a hotline. Some were funded by TV companies or newspapers. Others would simply turn up at the Tate's door and offer opaque explanations about where she was. John, Sheila and Violet Tate were so desperate to find her that they often joined in the searches with them. On one occasion, an old woman turned up at Barton Farm Cottage and sat in the corner of the room to summon her Native American spirit guide, who gave predictably useless information about where she might be. It was a load of rubbish, everybody. They bought no man, no real information at all. Did you at the time clutch at any sort of straws and and look for their help and think, well, if, if, if they're trying to help, then I'll, I'll listen to them? Or, or will you yeah. dismiss it? Um, at the beginning, when they came, they often raised our hopes to precious heights, expecting to find her, even telling us where to go to look for her, you know. And within a few hours or a day or so, it, it all disintegrated, and it was... Obviously, it was a load of rubbish. Dowsers who came to the incident room and held dowsing sticks over the um, over the map uh, of the area and indicated where you know she might have gone. Um, there were psychics of one kind or another. There was one one guy who was a ufologist. He turned up and he said she'd been abducted by I think it was a spacecraft from Venus because he looked in the field over the hedge and there was a large scorch mark which he said was actually the exhaust of a, of a spacecraft which had landed there and abducted her. guy came to see us and he rang the, the Venusians were going to return to that, that night 
And because she'd gone in the middle of the afternoon, she was going to be returned in the middle of the night. So he was going to go up and sit in the road near when near the lane where she went from. And he duly did. And we watched from a distance. There was nothing that happened. The circumstances of Jeanette's disappearance was so mysterious that it attracted people with unorthodox views. Essentially, there was a void at the centre of the case. A girl had vanished, there had been no sighting, no suspect, no plausible explanation. Why not then fill the vacuum with implausible answers? The problem is that over time these theories become attached to the case and take us further away from the facts. Nobody, not the Dowsers, not Crossette, not the Psychic Squad, could produce a registration number that could be tracked down or a location where police could dig and find something. The only upside was that it kept the media interest going. But even that couldn't last forever. We kept it going as long as possible. It was about 18 months. It was still, um, Roger Busby still again. generating news and still getting information coming in, still following up leads of inquiry one way or another. There was... Um, uh, a uh, in-depth police inquiry into activities in the village on the day in question various potential suspects came to light they were all um, pursued interviewed etc but but really the lines of inquiry came to nothing the initial police investigation into the disappearance of Jeanette ran out of steam after about 18 months the media interest which had focused so intently on Aylesbeer gradually tapered away. The newsmen moved on and detectives relocated back to Exeter where a storeroom containing thousands of statements, Jeanette's bicycle and every other piece of potential evidence was stockpiled. It remains in existence to this day. The missing person investigation remained open and new leads were chased when they presented themselves. According to police, every possible lead was checked, but there was no progress on the case. Inquiries took police all over the country. Whenever a child killer was arrested in the UK, detectives would travel to question them, more in hope than expectation that they could be linked in some way to Jeanette's disappearance. Think of a name of a serial killer active in England in the 1970s and 80s and there is a strong chance that at some point he will have been questioned in connection to the Tate investigation. In 1982, detectives travelled to Australia on just such a mission but it led nowhere. In these podcasts, I've tried to stick to the facts and main themes of the investigation as much as I possibly can. With that in mind, I'm not going to chase every line of inquiry. It is enough to say that by the 1980s, the investigation had lost its direction. Detectives were sure Jeanette had been abducted, but they had no idea by who or where she had gone. The failure of the investigation was clear. The disappearance was a mystery, the rumours were speculative, the search international and the coverage sensational, but ultimately the crime was unsolved. But in 1990, all that began to change. 
On July 14th of that year, a man was arrested after abducting a child in the Scottish Borders area. His name was Robert Black, and the full extent of his crimes revealed him to be one of the most notorious child serial killers in Britain in modern times. Abducting Jeanette had been an outrageous, monstrous act, and in Robert Black, police finally had a suspect with the appetites and psychology of a monster. I might park up for a couple of minutes and, and watch it. And what would you be thinking about at that time? As you say, trying to figure out how old she was. Would she or wouldn't she? And again, explain that for me, Robert. Like, what do you mean, would she, wouldn't, wouldn't she? If we're in a private situation mm -hmm. together, would she be... Would she be willing or not? And what would the child be doing? Passive. What do you mean, Robert? Mm. Not helping, but not resisting, neither. The voice of Robert Black from 2005. The Scotsman was convicted of the rape, kidnap and murder of four girls aged between 5 and 11 in a series of killings committed between 1981 and 1986. The recording was made by the police service of Northern Ireland during an interview Black gave to DC Pamela Simpson. Black never confessed to any of his killings and carefully avoided incriminating himself directly. But under the officer's careful coaxing, he opened up about his fantasies and the techniques he would employ to abduct a girl. He explains how he begins by observing the girl from his parked car and trying to guess what age she is before imagining them alone together. It's perhaps as close as police ever got to understanding the mind of this killer. Robert Black was born out of wedlock um, to, to a woman who gave him up for adoption and he was actually fostered from the age of six months by a family called Tulip. Chris Clark is a retired detective and co-author of a book, The Face of Evil, the true story of serial killer Robert Black. He's researched Black's background and his activities extensively. The male person of the household died when Robert was about five. As a clear indication, there must have been a sexual involvement between the two, um, with, with his foster father and Robert, because he had this perverse interest in little girls by the, by the time this man died. Um, he, he continued to live with his foster mother, Margaret Tulip, until she died when he was around about age 11 and he was then taken into care by the local authority and went into a children's home. Um, therein, he, he was then sexually abused by a male member of uh, the staff and around about the age of uh, 15, the Robert Black that um, emerged was clearly, by that time, desensitised in all elements of sexuality. He then ob obtained a job as a uh, butcher's roundsman in Glasgow, where he's reputed himself out of his own mouth to have assaulted at least 40 to 50 girls, uh, little girls, when he was on the butcher's round. Black's first serious offence was against a seven-year-old girl. He was 16 at the time. Despite this, 
he got away with a warning from the courts. He left a little girl in an air raid shelter that he'd strangled and masturbated over, and he left her not caring or knowing whether she was dead or alive. Uh, the little girl actually uh, managed to uh, gain consciousness. He did a year's borstal after another assault on a girl, so that by the time he left Scotland in the autumn of 1968, bound for London, he was a convicted sex offender with a clear predatory interest in young girls. In 1976, he obtained a driving licence and he then uh, got employment with, with uh, PDS, which was a poster delivery service, which... Um, the poster campaign went, went all over, not just the United Kingdom, but also into into Europe as well, as well as Ireland. Black's job as a poster delivery driver took him all over the country. It was the perfect cover for a predatory paedophile. The road network of the UK allowed him to materialise, observe, abduct and disappear with his victim without police realising he had even been there. The main motorway routes across the land gave him the opportunity to arrive and to get away from the scene, but he would go off track into smaller towns and villages to select his target. Exactly the same when he was arrested in 1990. A little girl was in a small village um, just off the A7, which actually ran through the centre of the village. In 1990, Black was arrested in the village of Stowe in the Scottish borders. A retired postmaster was mowing his front garden when he saw a blue transit van slow to a stop and a man get out. He appeared to be cleaning his windscreen, but as the neighbour's six-year-old daughter passed by, he saw the girl's feet disappearing from the ground as though she had been lifted into the van. Black had been spotted in the act of abducting a girl. The neighbour called police and they were at the scene within minutes. Shortly afterwards, the van was spotted. Black had actually returned to the scene of the attempted abduction and he was captured. The girl was discovered in the back, her wrists bound, her mouth gagged. She had been sexually assaulted on the main road outside the village, but she was alive. Black was sentenced to life imprisonment. His paedophilic tendencies, combined with the opportunity to travel around the country, alerted police to the possibility that he may have committed other crimes. I remember Robert Black being arrested, not because of the Jeanette Tate. He was arrested, as you know, up in Scotland, wasn't he? Here's retired Detective Inspector Mike Walsh of Devon and Cornwall Police, who was in charge of the suspect team during the original Jeanette Tate investigation. He and a couple of lads went up to, went up to liaise with the police officers in, in Scotland. Nothing came out of that. In fact, that at that time, the Scottish police were dealing with them. They, they really didn't want anybody else interfering until they sorted their own problems. On May 19th, 1994, Robert Black was convicted in Newcastle of the murder and kidnap of three girls. He was sentenced to life with a minimum term of 35 years. His victims were Susan Maxwell, an 11-year-old girl on the English side of the Scottish border in 1982, Caroline Hogg, aged five, in Edinburgh in 1983, and Sarah Harper, a 10-year-old girl in Leeds in 1986. 
The disappearance of all three girls had triggered major police searches, just like Jeanette's case had. In each crime, Black had targeted girls walking alone on roads close to their homes. He had used his work van to observe, abduct and sexually assault his victims. Each was probably killed shortly after their kidnap. Their bodies were discarded many miles away, close to major roads. He was also convicted of the attempted abduction of Teresa Thornhill, a 15-year-old girl in Nottingham in 1988. Black had stopped his car in her path and asked her for help. He tried to drag her inside, but she had bravely fought him off. He had various vans, including the one we used in the Northern Ireland trip was, was a, Nis- a white Nissan van, but he also had um, a red Ford Transit van and, and a blue Transit van at his disposal. There was uh, not only fuel um, receipts, but there were also, um, he, he paid by um, a, a, the company debit card or, or a, a credit card. Um, so when, when the murders of Susan Maxwell, Caroline Hogg, and Sarah Harper were linked together and Robert Black was subsequently arrested in 1990. They then did a trawl back in timeline, back as far as I'm aware to the mid-1970s and got all of the petrol receipts and other paraphernalia which they tried to link Robert Black at the particular abduction and uh, deposition sites. So on August 19th, 1978, that's the day Jeanette goes missing, is there evidence that Black was in Aylesbury at that time? There, there is evidence um, of a petrol receipt, apparently that he obtained petrol in Exeter. And there's also uh, a woman who was at um, Exeter Airport um, with, with her young daughter, was aware of a man in a red van staring intently at her daughter. Um, it made her uh, feel very nervous. Um, the man then drove off, and she said in a, in a later statement, towards Aylesbury. And when Robert Black was subsequently arrested, she recognised from his arrest photograph that he was the man on the date in question. Devon and Cornwall police were now building a case against Robert Black, but it wasn't easy. The man himself was uncooperative. He had pleaded not guilty at his trials and despite admitting a sexual interest in young girls, never implicated himself in any murders, despite repeated attempts by detectives to get him to confess. He certainly had the means and opportunity to have abducted Jeanette. His job took him all over the country, including Exeter, and armed him with an intimate knowledge of the UK's road network. As for method... The three murdered girls had all disappeared in circumstances similar to Jeanette. The woman who claimed to have seen a man matching Black's description at Exeter Airport on the day Jeanette went missing was treated as a credible witness. Let's look at the Robert Black timeline. He is arrested in 1990 for the attempted abduction in Stowe and never leaves prison alive again. In 1994, he is jailed for the three murders and the subsequent publicity leads to the witness who claims she saw a man matching his description at Exeter Airport. From that point on, Devon and Cornwall police are convinced he is their man 
and tried to build a criminal case against him for the kidnap and murder of Jeanette. They interview him, but he denies involvement. 2002, Sheila Tate finds an old sweater of Jeanette's from which scientists are able to extract her DNA. 2008, the Crown Prosecution Service decide there is insufficient evidence to try Robert Black for Jeanette's disappearance. 2011, and Black is convicted of a fourth child killing, this time nine-year-old Jennifer Cardi in Northern Ireland in 1981. She had been riding her bicycle close to home in circumstances similar to Jeanette's disappearance. 2013, Black loses his appeal against that conviction, submitted on the grounds that his trial was prejudiced because the jury had knowledge of his previous crimes. This gives fresh hope to Devon and Cornwall police who launch a new cold case review involving an eight-strong team of officers, some of whom worked on the original investigation. I had um, some information passed on to me that uh, uh, Black was going to be charged with Jeanette's murder and abduction. Nick Irving is a freelance journalist from Exeter who has spent more than 20 years reporting on this case. They would have charged uh, Robert Black probably in the February of March, but of course he died in prison beforehand. So as far as I was concerned, we were going to have our day in court for, for the family and of course for every journalist who'd covered the case as well. At the time of his death, police say they were weeks away from presenting a fresh file to the CPS seeking a decision on whether they could prosecute Black for the abduction and murder of Jeanette. I think the police were completely shell-shocked and very frustrated uh, that Black evaded justice by dying in prison. Certainly from, I think, the family's point of view, they would have just liked to have seen him in court and had, had he been acquitted, they could have said, right, we can draw a line under Robert Black, it's somebody else. But that everybody was just denied that day in court. Three months later, police present that dossier to the CPS, but the CPS says they will not make a posthumous charging decision. Although Robert Black was only ever convicted of four murders, all in the 1980s, the full extent of his crimes could far surpass that. He's been linked to at least 12 killings in Britain, Ireland and Europe. Chris Clark is convinced that he was active as far back as 1969, when a 13-year-old schoolgirl called April Fab disappeared from a village close to her home in Norfolk. Her bicycle was found lying in a field and her body never traced. With regards to Jeanette, the similarities between the 1969 abduction and disappearance of April Fab and Jeanette were more or less identical in, in, in every element, apart from the fact that April's cycle was thrown into a field, whereas Jeanette's with the high hedges was left in situ. So there is a, a clear linkage um, and, and a a method employed. Going on to um, my, my research, um, I made an appeal in 2012 to the Hackney Gazette, which is a London-based newspaper, for any information on Robert Black's early timeline. And I had a, one reply back um, from, from a man who met him in the pub in 1983 and got into conversation with him. And the man, realising Black was from Scotland, said it's terrible about the, that little girl, Susan Maxwell. 
And Robert Black turned round to him and straight away said, it's no more terrible than, and he reeled off eight or nine names. Some of the names are people he's been convicted of and the others he's suspected of, which included the name of April Fab and Jeanette Tate. On the other side of the scales, there is an argument against Robert Black being responsible. The evidence is circumstantial rather than directly placing him in Aylesbury at 3.30pm on the day. A number of vehicles were spotted in and around the Withan Lane area on the day Jeanette went missing, but I haven't found any evidence of a red transit van being linked to the original investigation. There is no forensic link to Black, of course, or anybody else for that matter, or apparently anyone matching his description at the time. The sighting at the airport wasn't reported until many years after the event, and Black doesn't appear to have any connection with the man in the maroon car. Police now say that Black once admitted to a prison officer that he had visited Aylesbury, but we can't tell whether he was manipulating the situation to lead detectives a merry dance, or if it was an off-guard incriminating comment. On balance, I would say the evidence points to Robert Black being responsible for the abduction of Jeanette, and if we accept that, we have to accept the most likely scenario, that she was transported from the scene and murdered. The evidence, to my mind, isn't conclusive, but it is compelling. Whether a jury would convict is another matter, of course. I've reported on many criminal trials, and it would take a strong-minded jury indeed not to convict such a notorious criminal, considering his previous convictions. But a skilled defence barrister may be able to throw enough doubt into their minds. The question of petrol receipts may be crucial here. Devon and Cornwall Police have never revealed the documentary proof of a receipt, but it is widely believed that they have some evidence he was at least working on the southwest route that day. You're probably wondering why Devon and Cornwall Police have made no official comment in this podcast. Well, I did ask. Essentially, they declined to take part because they don't want to add to the strain on the Tate family. The situation, as far as the police are concerned, has not changed in two years. With no CPS charge for black, they say their hands are tied. Essentially, there are no further updates in this case. That is the, the one thing I, I can't understand why Devon and Cornwall now, they've got the case closed, they've got the man who died, there's going to be no trial. Um, I feel they should say sufficiently to the public what the evidence is so that um, it can dispel any conspiracy theories or theories of any other person's involvement and put the case to rest. Type the words Jeanette Tate into an online search engine and you come across a range of sites with a healthy interest in the case. It's part of the legacy of this fascinating story. What fuels the interest, of course, is debating the unanswered questions. What happened to Jeanette? Who abducted her? Was it Black? Was it somebody else? Was she happy at home? Why was this photo used rather than another? Incompetent police, dishonest police, John Tate's failings, investigative cock-ups. 
There are conspiracy websites, crime forums and even a Facebook page dedicated to discussion about the topic. I've spoken to people with all sorts of ideas about what happened to Jeanette. One woman called the office in Exeter to explain that her husband had abducted her but police had not questioned him properly at the time. He was also a philanderer who couldn't keep his hands off other women. What I do know is that he is one of dozens, if not hundreds of people, who have had the finger of suspicion pointed at them. That, of course, doesn't mean we shouldn't ask difficult questions. But at this stage of proceedings, with Black dead, Jeanette vanished without trace, the case effectively closed and conspiracies rampant, there can be little harm in publishing the full details of the police case against Robert Black. John, John, overall, do you have an opinion of what happened to her? Um, no, not really. I don't know. I'm not the foggiest. There were a few theories. One is that she was um, abducted from that spot, taken off by someone. Could have been someone she knew. Or a complete stranger. Um, and that was it, really. Have you at any point um, given up hope that Jeanette is alive? Do you think she's been abducted, taken away and murdered? I don't know about that. I don't think so. And I don't think... I don't think she's wandering around somewhere. Because I think she'd have come on with that in the case at some stage. But I don't know what to make of it. I really do not. I do not believe Robert Black murdered or don't think he had anything to do with that. I know what people in Aylesbeer say, that we shouldn't stir up old trauma, and what the police say, that the family should be left in peace. On the way into the churchyard here, I saw one local lady. I explained what I was doing, and she simply said, Oh, you never give in, do you? As a journalist, I can't deny it's a great story, with a mystery and an unresolved ending which leads to endless speculation. But if we forget about past events, even the most nightmarish, if we don't retell that story from time to time and keep Jeanette's memory alive, then she becomes just another crime statistic. In these podcasts, I've come across the names of several children who've been abducted and never found. I'll read out a small selection of their names. April Fab, Christine Markham, Suzanne Lawrence, Patricia Morris, Pamela Hastie and Mary Boyle. For what it's worth, I'd like to dedicate this podcast not only to Jeanette, but to those children who, like her, were in some way betrayed by the adult world and never came home. Jeanette's disappearance is only a mystery because we haven't found the answers yet. So until we find an ending for Jeanette and her family, we'll keep coming back and retelling her story.
The Disappearance of Jeanette Tate is a Devon Live production written and hosted by Paul Greaves, edited by John Bishop, with special thanks to Nick Irving and Roger Busby and Devon Live editor Rich Booth.